Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The way that we've seen this fail is usually the employers or the executives don't trust their people that they think that if you're home, you're not working. The point is not in control, right? The point is measuring results instead. So you're looking at output. If you're only looking at output, then it doesn't matter if the person spent an hour to do it or eight hours. But if they hit the output for the day, they're done. We all play games. Whether that's on a console, a laptop, with friends, or even in the real world. Hello, I am Monisberto. People call me Tech Lolo or Tech Tito, depending on your age and inclination. In this podcast, we look at the intersection between business and gaming. We ask people who are leaders in their fields, what games are they playing? For this episode, I'm joined by Carl Syed from Puma Podcast. Hi, everyone. Hello, Carl. And let me ask you this. Have you ever thought of making your own video game? Yeah, interesting story, Sir Mono. I've been trying to make my own video game since I was in high school. So coding has always been sort of a hobby of mine. Talaga, ha? Iba na talaga mga bata ngayon. Well, well coding is amazing. <laughs> but there's so much more to games than just codes, no? There are creative decisions involved in order to make games really great. That's true. And I wish I'd known that 10 years earlier. But, you know, who better to talk about those decisions than someone who is heavily involved in that process? This is Episode 4 of Squad Leader. This podcast is brought to you by Smart. Live your passion with purpose with Smart Prepaid and powered by Puma Podcast. So our guest for today is the creative director and co-founder of Attitude Games, the game studio behind award-winning games such as Holy Ship with a P and Dream Defense. Welcome to Squad Leader, Luna Javier. It's nice to be here. Thank you for your time as well. Miss Luna's journey in the gaming world started at an early age. Since I was a child, I was playing on our family computer and then the Super NES. And then I got my first PlayStation 1 in college, na, then PlayStation 2. And yeah, so, so I've been playing most of my life, I would say. When I was growing up, I never thought I was a gamer. It was just something that I did at home, like reading or watching TV. And then when I got to college, because I went to a, an all-female school eh, for grade school and high school. So when I got to college and I had male classmates, they were super gamers. Like they would play Counter-Strike and StarCraft. Um, and they would play in these internet shops near the school. And that felt like a boys club to me. Uh, and that was 
okay back then. Like we talk about it now that oh, that you know, gaming was such a male-dominated industry and a male-dominated market back then. But back then, it was that was just what the boys did, and I was playing The Sims at home. Right by myself, or I had my PlayStation One. I would play RPGs, role-playing games by myself, and I just didn't identify with the gamer crowd. And it was only when I started working in games that I kind of embraced the gamer label. We were playing Warcrafty a lot in the office and things like that. And then the market shifted when the iPhone came out, and so. Suddenly, you could play games on your phone, and so now there were games that were not necessarily gendered. So imagine coming from Counter Strike and Diablo and that kind of very dark brown, violent marketing for boys or men, right? And then you have Bejeweled, and then later Candy Crush, and these very colorful, non-gendered games that came out that did skew more to women, but you know, men also played it, right? Both my dad and my mom would play Candy Crush a lot and get very competitive about it. And then it also broke the age barrier as well, where games used to be targeted towards like 18 to 30-year-old males. Mm. And then now, you know, young kids can play games on their phones or tablets or seniors can play games as well. So now the term gamer is inclusive of everyone. Today, video games are much more accessible than ever. Everyone with an access to a smartphone can now play games. Oh, Sir Mon, and that's all you need to do to be considered a gamer. Whatever your gender, age, or platform you play in, you can call yourself a gamer. That's the funny thing is that if you look at the data, actually, the gaming market is about 40 to 45% female now. And people don't want to talk about it. They're gatekeeping it. They think that, oh, us hardcore gamers on console are you know, the only true gamers, etc. And they definitely exist, but the world is much bigger than that slice of the pie. And in fact, the age as well is no longer just 18 to 30. It's very interesting to see every year that the difference between the male and female slice of the pie is getting much smaller. And that's okay with me that they can have their little slice because the games that we make, because we're a mobile game company, you know, we're making games for everybody. Honestly, and from the data that we've seen, you know, these hardcore gamers will play some hardcore game on their PC master race computer, (laughs) but they're also playing games on their phone. They just don't consider that as games, but they're playing an idle game or they're playing a hyper casual game. Like they're playing a puzzle game. Like everybody has games on their phone. They might not just talk about it to their friends, (laughs) but yeah, it's, it's much bigger than they think it is. And knowing how wide the audience can be, you can only imagine how difficult it is to make creative decisions on the games that you publish. But we'll get to that later. For now, let's ask Luna. How did your career in the gaming industry start? It was by accident, actually. So when I was in college, I was studying to be a screenwriter for film. That was really what I wanted to do ever since high school palang. And there was no games industry when I was in school. So there were no courses, there were no companies, nothing. We're a very new industry here in the Philippines. So when I graduated from college, I saw an ad in the paper for a 3D artist position for a game company. So it was the first game company in the country called Anino Entertainment. And I didn't think that was significant. I just wanted the 3D job so I could apply to Pixar, which was like my secret dream. 
And uh, two weeks into it, my boss sat me down and said my 3D art was not good. And he asked if I could write instead because he saw on my resume that I was writing throughout school. So I ended up writing the script and the quests dialogue for the role-playing game that we were making. That's how I got into game design. So from game writing, I started doing game design work, so gameplay. And I fell in love with that. It was much more interesting than writing for film. I worked with Booms Up Entertainment, which was a Singaporean company, and we made adventure games for a very specific market. It was the adult American female market. So it was a lot of romance. It was a lot of fantasy. There was a lot of horror as well, but it was very story-driven. And I got to make a few different franchises which had sequels. So it was the same problem where you would have characters from the first game continue to the second, third, up to like the sixth or seventh game. That's so incredible no? how expansive gaming worlds can be. And, and you mentioned that writing for games is more interesting than writing for film. Why is that? It was more interesting for me because of the game that we were making. It was a role-playing game where you had two playable characters. So if it were a film, you have two heroes. But there were multiple storylines and multiple endings. So I got to write for the female character. And you could make choices in the dialogue and in the way you helped people or chose not to help people. And that would affect the world and the ending that you would get. So I also got to write, let's say if I did a particular action and I went into this village, then everybody would react to me a different way. So in terms of the amount of content, it was easily quadruple (laughs) what a normal story would be. Uh, I I used to get jokes about how high my word count was because I was just enjoying it so much. But also just the ability for the player to make choices and have that affect everything else. And so to Uh kind of have the interactive narrative. And that was super interesting to me. But what I think about story games, I think, and also as a gamer, is when you play a story-driven game, you're really playing the story that is designed by the auteur, right? Whether that's like Mm. the creative director or they have a narrative designer or something. And it's just like watching a movie where you play the game because you are a fan of the story and it might not take you where you want it to go. Mm. And you can have an opinion where, well, that's not the ending that I wanted, but the game isn't made just for you, right? That's right, you know? And that takes us to decision-making in the game development process. Luna, how do you manage expectations of your audience, knowing that there are millions of potential gamers that can play your product? You just have to decide, who am I making this story for? Like, who am I making this game for? If it's just for me, and I don't care what anyone else thinks, this is the story that I want, and this is the ending that I want to write for my character, then the, the comments they don't affect you. If it's, I need to make as much money as possible and therefore try to please as many people as possible with the story that I am making, then you should probably listen to your fans, get feedback, listen to the reviews. Um, Usually they'll do like focus groups ahead of the launch and kind of get reactions, things like that. Or they'll do a beta test, same thing, they'll get feedback. And so you'll be more open to what your audience wants if those are the people you're trying to please. But at the end of the day, you can't please everyone. And so I've learned that the loudest people are usually the angriest people and they don't represent most of your market, right? When you run a gaming company, you are very aware that what you make is a product, right? 
not that it stops becoming art, but it definitely becomes more like a product where you need to make money based on the cost that you have spent. And so you do make decisions based on what the market wants or for mobile games, what would the market pay for, right? Because our mobile games are free to play, so they're free to play unless you wanted to get ahead and then you can spend like, you know, a few pesos or dollars to get some gems or whatever. And so you start making decisions based on that. And that's just a business strategy you have to make if you have employees and you're trying to feed everyone's families, right? Yes, that's right. And how do you balance that, Luna? The need to believe that you will make a great game, but at the same time, make it profitable. We've always been in the middle. One of our games from 2018, Kung Fu Clicker, was published with Pickpock Games. So what that means is, so we have a vision and they have a vision and we kind of come together and develop this game hoping that the market will like it. That's just the game industry. I tend to make decisions right down the middle. So you have to understand what your game is about and what you're excited about as a team. So we call them, for example, they could be design principles or design pillars. So these are the things that make our game our game. And this is what we're excited about. And we usually write that out at the start of a project. And then as time goes on and the market changes and there are, you know, feedback requests and things you have to go back to. But is this our game or not? Right. And again, some sacrifices will be made. But in the end, you just try to ship like the closest to your original vision as possible and hope that someone out there likes it. I'm not very sentimental because <laughs> I'm very like product driven. So I am okay with let's do a beta test, let's do a survey, let's look at market trends. A lot of my job is just looking at market trends. So I'm okay with factoring that in. But the team has to be excited about this game because if they're not, it's going to show in their work. It's going to be lackluster. In pursuit of that, as creative director, how would you communicate your ideas to your team and handle the filtering of ideas from different people? Well, one thing that I tell my designers is it's not a democracy. So, <laughs> oh boy. So now the other people in the company are like, that's what you've been telling the designers? Um, so game development is all about collaboration for sure. In the sense that you have teams. The team can be three people, 10 people. It depends on how big the game is. But there always has to be someone who makes the calls, right? So this person has to be able to take all the feedback and listen for real you have to listen to everyone and seriously give everything some thought. But it's your gut or your experience that will decide out of the 7 or 20 or 50 ideas, this is the one that is best for the game. And so game design is really just guesswork because we don't know what the market is going to be like when the game comes out. It's like film. like You don't know that this movie is going to be a hit. You can put all the money in marketing, etc., but it could still bomb because you can't predict people's behavior 100%. So internally, it's the same. So we want to make sure everybody has a way to suggest ideas. So it's not like the game designer makes the design and then everyone executes. We're very strict about having everybody in group calls, having daily works in progress, sharing your ideas with everyone. You can comment on anything, whether you're in the same game or not. You can comment on art, code, design, even though you're not from art, code, design. Like Everybody's chatting all the time. And there's a lot of ownership with the teams that way. And then the designer at the end of the day has to make that design call, right? And in fact, the more experienced they are, the better their calls are. 
if they're not sure about their design call, that's when they consult me or they have usually a product uh, manager who's in charge of the product side, the business side of the game. They can consult the publisher. But at the end of the day, you have to be okay with your own decision, right? That, no, this is the suggestion that I'm going to go with. And then if it fails, you have to own that. Well, that's a decision I decided to do. So when I say it's not a democracy, you cannot crowdsource design decisions all the time because then the game will not be cohesive. You can't please everyone. It's the same with the team. You can't do everyone's suggestions to be nice. You have to choose what's the best design decision for the game. And it might not be your idea. It could be somebody else's. But one person has to make that call. Following through on that, Luna, what decisions in the creative process are, in your experience, usually the really critical ones? I would say feature decisions are usually difficult to do. So feature meaning a game can have different features. So for example, how many characters will there be? How does the income work? And how does the battle work? And is there multiplayer? And all of these are features that you're adding onto the model. And every single one is a decision that has to be made from nothing, right? And so now I have to say, yes, we will have multiplayer. Or no, we will not have multiplayer. How does that affect the business model. Yeah. How does that affect the players want multiplayer? And then now everyone's talking, but you know, maybe we should have multiplayer. And then every single feature that I decide is good adds one month, three months, six months. It adds five people to the team. It adds this much budget. It's the start of a project where I decide the features of the game and how they work, not knowing how the next six months is going to turn out like. That's probably the hardest part of design for me. Because once you figure that out, and then it's just execution. Like you'll have changes and feedback, things like that. But deciding what the game will be is tough. <laughs> I get what you mean, you know. Making crucial decisions that can affect the production process can really be tough at times. And following through on them can be even tougher. Now, another interesting decision you made was the work-from-home setup of your company, Altitude Games. And you guys were years ahead in that respect, you know. I mean, you were doing this even before the pandemic. Now, why did you go in that direction and how did it work for you? A lot of the credit goes to our previous company. So three of us co-founders came from the same company, BoomZap. And BoomZap was always remote. So even though they were based in Singapore, they had no office and they really hired people from everywhere. And so because I had worked there since 2008, I knew that the system worked, right? And I actually took a bunch of their principles and applied them to Altitude while tweaking a few things. But we saw all the benefits already. Like the fact that we could hire from anywhere is one. Like we have, you know, people who are not from NCR, more not from the Philippines that we can hire. And the fact that people didn't have to commute to work is huge. So when we used to have an office, we would sometimes call meetings like all hands meeting or milestone meetings and everybody had to come to the office. And for a three hour meeting, the whole day is gone because people are commuting by bus. It would take them like two to three hours to get there. And then of course you'll have breakfast, you'll have lunch, etc., merienda, and then you have to go all the way back. So imagine all day your productivity is gone for one meeting. Collaboration can be done in calls or screen sharing, drawing on each other's screens, we can do that. You know, we can just chat and talk about our decisions. Like we don't have to physically be there. 
the only thing that we really do miss is the physical collaboration and connection that you can't replicate. But because of BoomZap, we already knew that it worked. And so we only added the option of having an office at altitude because we missed that part. I think the biggest prerequisite is trusting that your employees will work and focusing on results. So the way that we've seen this fail is usually the employers or the executives don't trust their people that they think that if you're home, you're not working. The point is not in control, right? The point is measuring results instead. So you're looking at output. So for example, if you have a goal for the day or a goal for the week, if that person doesn't hit their goal, everyone knows it because we have daily stand-up calls in the morning. We have a project manager who's monitoring the output. We have milestones for the publisher. So you couldn't slack off and get away with it, right? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so... If you're only looking at output, then it doesn't matter if the person spent an hour to do it or eight hours. But if they hit the output for the day, they're done. Like me, I work very intensely for short periods of time. That's just how I work, right? So I could be done with my day by 4 p.m. I usually am, and I'm exhausted. But I will put everything by 4, and then I'll go work out. You know, I'll do all my other things. And that's a freedom that I enjoy because I know how to motivate myself to finish all my tasks by 4. So it's a different way of working. And that's where we found some companies when they ask us, how do you do it? I don't understand how you can do it. You have to trust these people are adults. They're good at their jobs. You hired them because they're good at their jobs. They'll give you the output you need. Just be very clear when it's due and then what kind of quality you expect. And then they'll do it. So in other words, you hire adults. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's harder. It's harder than you think. (laughs) Well, I'd have to agree with you on that. Working from home can be challenging, and trusting that your people will deliver is essential in making the work-from-home setup, well, you know, work. Oh, Sir Mon, the challenge is to actually work and not just to stay in bed the entire day. Ganon. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, you know, I, I know some people who stay in bed, but they work from bed. So work from yeah. home, right? Ganon. <laughs> No, but, you know, trust is really one of those issues in the work from home. You know, for some employers, no, I mean, jo, gusto nila, nakikita nila yung tao nasa mesa and they're at their desks or at the offices. There's that urge to be reassured. But, uh, well, times are challenging. You know, people have to adjust, right? Mm-hmm. Let's see. Now, let's go back to the gaming market. Luna, where do you see it moving forward? So the gaming market is actually doing very well during the pandemic. So a lot of people who weren't playing games before suddenly started Googling best game to play on phone. Um, And so we saw downloads increase uh, for mobile games. We saw engagement increase so people are now playing every day when they used to only play on weekends, for example, because you would be busy during the week. Uh, And also there are a lot of multiplayer games and social games, social features that spike up because people are looking for a way to connect with their family or their friends. So a lot of the top games, so things like Among Us, uh, Fall Guys, things like that, where you can play with people that you know were very popular. And what the data analysts are saying is this will continue even after the pandemic is over because now gaming is 
a part of people's everyday life. So the gamers are still gamers, but these new gamers who have started getting, you know, switches and games on their tablets and phones, playing with their friends, playing with their family, that will continue even when the world opens up because now it's a normal thing to do, just like watching TV. And it's fascinating to attend these gaming conferences now. Um, well, online, of course, but when they talk about the trends, right? Mm-hmm. So, for example, a lot of the social features, especially in China, um, are huge because China, they locked down like very early, right? So, yeah. There are games now where the lobbies where you meet up, so the, let's say it's a, an online game, and then the lobbies are usually where people stay before they get into battle. So now these social lobbies are actually the point. Like people are going there not to play the game, but to talk with other people because they're so disconnected wow. um, from people in the real world. So there's a lot of new social features and innovations happening in China that the industry is looking at. And you can see also these concerts that are happening inside mm. games, uh, things like that. So gaming is fortunately or unfortunately really booming now. And I'm excited to see if everybody is now playing games, right? That means our market has just like exploded. And so we actually have new gamers to make games for and they don't have preconceived notions of gaming as well because they weren't gaming before this Mm -hmm. so uh, hyper casual for example is a genre that is very huge and something that altitude is kind of starting in and hyper casual games are games that you see in ads where you're for example cutting soap or doing something very simple everyday tasks and people play this as a way to escape and entertain themselves for very short one minute periods of time so that's why they're like bite-sized hyper casual games i just have to ask how do crypto blockchain and nfts fit into this future you're really going to ask (laughs) (laughs) i have to (laughs) well altitude does make blockchain games but i would say that the market there has also improved recently because of the nft boom right with nft or non-fungible tokens a type of cryptocurrency. Basically, NFTs are now mass market. It was on Saturday Night Live. You know, a bunch of celebrities are now launching their NFTs as well. And so because of that, if you make a game that uses NFTs, more and more people are getting interested in those now. So we were making blockchain games all the way back in 2018, I think. And only now are people outside our circle kind of understanding what those are about. The biggest problem with blockchain gaming is adoption. And it's the same for cryptocurrency. It's just people didn't understand it. It was too hard to get a wallet, to buy tokens. It was just a hard concept to grasp and to get into. But because there's more people playing, more people buying, then the user experience gets easier. It's easier now to get a wallet. Some phones come with wallets already. Some browsers come with wallets already. Like I foresee people owning NFTs the way they own anything else. There's a great documentary that came out recently on Axie Infinity, which is a game, a blockchain game that is super popular in certain parts of the Philippines because people are using it to earn income. Entire barangays playing Axie Infinity, not understanding what cryptocurrency is. That's not why they started playing. They started playing because it was a cute game on their phone that earns money for them. And so some people have started buying house and lots are buying cars based on the income that they get from playing a game. So that's the dream. I'm playing a game and 
you know, making more money than I did before the pandemic, that's blockchain gaming for you. It doesn't always have to be, let's talk about cryptocurrency and how cool this technology is. Maybe the way in is play this game and you can, you know, earn some stuff and sell that for real money. Why not? remember when Gabby, our CEO, first had the conversation with us that, you know, I think Altitude should start like a blockchain gaming team. And I didn't understand what blockchain was either. And we had this long conversation where I'm like, but it's not real money. And then he said, neither is your money. Like this 20 peso bill that you're holding is a representation of value that's made up. You know that that 20 peso bill in itself does not have money. And I'm like, but that's money. And so it's, we just went around in circles because I couldn't understand it. And I know that most people are coming from where I came from as well. But yeah, so maybe, you know, blockchain gaming and NFTs are the way to go. If you think about it like Magic the Gathering cards or baseball cards or Funko Pops, these are things you collect that have value based on what the market is willing to pay for them. So if I have like a Funko Pop that is rare, I can go sell it to my friend for double what I bought it for. And that value is not intrinsic. It's a value that was set by me and my friend in the market. But you can do that with digital things. Wow. Now that is a lot to wrap our heads around. (laughs) With the pace that technology is developing these days, we must keep up through constant research and innovation. But before growth can begin, we have to start somewhere. So Luna, for our aspiring game developers out there, what would be your advice for them? I think the best way to get into the industry is just to make a bunch of games. We're now living in a time where you can do that by yourself or with your friends. So there are game engines, there are browser-based platforms where you can go and make your own game. You can buy art from asset stores. You can put a game up on Google Play by yourself. So there are ways now for you to learn with all the YouTube tutorials and the courses that you can take from home, which weren't available 20 years ago for sure. And so you could teach yourself how to do the thing that you're interested in. And then you'll only get good at it by doing it over and over. Like there's no... Shortcut. You won't get hired by saying, I want to make games and then you never made one. That's like saying, I want to write a novel and then never writing one. Like, you have to write it to get published, you know? You have to write a bunch of bad novels as well to kind of get to the place where you're okay. And that might get published or not, but then you just keep doing it. Yeah, so kayod lang. It's always kayod lang. Oh, nga, kayod lang. Hi, nako pareho. Just like any industry, you just gotta start and just go ahead and do it. <laughs> anyway, for this episode, we have learned that the gaming industry is growing exponentially thanks to the availability of games on smartphones. Mm, the ins and outs on how to make creative decisions in the game development process. And the potential of blockchain, crypto, and NFTs in gaming. So, Sermon. Oh. If you were to design your own game, what kind of game would it be? I would like to design a game where you have to be a different person to win. So it's like putting yourself in other people's shoes. Yep. Or turning yourself into a different monster or something like that. 
<laughs> anyway, ikaw talaga ka. Pinapaisip mo kung ano nung kalokohan. Anyway, once again, I'm Monis Beto, and thank you guys. Thank you very much for listening. And I'm Carl Sayat. This episode was produced and edited by Mark Casillian. Okay, guys, if you like this episode, please subscribe to Squad Leader on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is brought to you by Smart. Live your passion with purpose with Smart Prepaid and powered by Puma Podcasts. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.